of the reasons why it frustrates me when people on the left are disappointed with this or that action. Um, that's an idealistic disappointment. You know, uh, people on the left, Marxists, must seek the actual movement of history and not have an idealistic approach to a place like China doesn't doesn't want your 100% support or your 100% condemnation. It's our role as people of the left to understand the movement of history. Today we have with us Dr. Vijay Prashad. Vijay is the Executive Director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's an Indian historian, a journalist, an author, and a left activist. Vijay, welcome back to Indian Global Left. Nice to be with you. Nice to see you. Yeah. All right. Um, I wanted to start it with one of the recent columns you wrote in at the Tricontinental regarding the prospect of a multipolar world. And this is an interesting moment because uh, it's exactly two decades of invasion of Iraq. And, you know, the New York Times, the Washington, Washington Post are all over articles, some even supporting the war even today. And this was part of destabilizing the region. And in Israel, we are seeing... Uh, you know, apart from the, you know, right-wing coup of the judiciary attempts of the right-wing coup of the, of the judiciary, um, escalated killings in the occupied West Bank and Gaza democracy now documents 83 brutal killings this year alone. And the war over Ukraine is going on and NATO seems to be unrelenting. So that's one side of it. But then you have written about the other side China negotiating a peace plan over Ukraine. And we have recently seen the diplomatic efforts to bring together Saudi Arabia and Iran. So tell us a little bit about this uh, emerging uh, uh, multipolar world that you see. Well, I, I actually don't think it's a multipolar world. I think it's a return to a more balanced world. Um, you know, one of the downfalls of... Um, the North Atlantic world is the lack of a historical perspective in terms of, um, you know, how history has moved. Um, so what do I mean by that? That, you know, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, when it was assassinated in 1991 by its leadership, um, people in the United States, intellectuals in the United States began to say that, well, it's over. You know, now the U.S. has prevailed. And the U.S. will be the guardian of world affairs, you know, will essentially um, lead uh, and, and take on the responsibility of leadership. You know, leadership comes with a lot of responsibility. It's not just yelling and screaming at people. Um, well, that responsibility was supposed to be around themes such as development. Let's not ignore that. Um, at the World Trade Organization, whatever problems uh, one had then with it, and even now, um, there was a debate in the WTO about development that was on the table. Um, with leadership comes a certain responsibility for security that the, you know, the principal power in the world was going to ensure security. Well, the United States failed in both, uh, didn't provide development. In fact, the opposite, 
uh, accelerated the inequalities in the world. That is not something that a Marxist needs to approve. That is just proved by the data itself. You don't even need Thomas Piketty, in fact, frankly. Um, well, Forbes, but also the United Nations. Um, you know, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, um, the uh, human development indicators and so on. The UN documents for years have shown the yawning inequalities, you know, that have, have been there. Um, and then, of course, insecurity is the name of the game, not security. Uh, the war against Iraq is one piece of it, but also the global war on terror destabilized so many countries. The, the war on drugs, for instance, destabilized so many countries in Central America, in the Andes region, and so on. So, United States after the collapse of the USSR, failed in one respect to actually take up the mantle of leadership. Now, I'm not contesting whether it should have been leader or not. I'm just saying, if you're saying that you are the leader, then you have to live up to certain expectations. Those were, in fact, not lived up to in its own terms as a leader. Secondly, as I said, there's a long-term perspective. You know, until pretty recently in world history, um, the world was divided up into what you might consider um, arenas, you know, where different prevailing powers uh, dominated. So in, in, in Asia, for instance, um, South Southern Asia was one such zone. You know, there was not one monarch or one republic, um, but it was a kind of intertwined zone of different sorts of sovereignties, you know. Um, but certainly there was no foreign power. Um, you know, there were people who came and invaded the country, but they settled in. They became part of the matrix of Southern Asian life and so on, um, inclusive of Europeans. You know, they also came in um, in a long period in the 1600s, 1700s, and they settled into Indian life. You know, they became traders and so on. Um, much the same in, in China. You went through a series of dynasties. People came from outside it's not like China has some endogamous development, you know, that goes back to the dawn of time. No, people come from outside. There are, again, uh, overlapping sovereignties in Central Asia and Southeast Asia and so on. Um, these were two large land powers, which also had some maritime, you know, um, uh, abilities, but they were largely land powers. Then, of course, there was the great European um, you know, experiment where there was the Holy Roman Empire and blah, 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 blah. You know, you get the point. Um, there were very much different and overlapping forms of sovereignty and suzerainty in the world. Well, colonialism attempted to undermine all that. And for the first time, really, in, in human history, you had one or two or three or four powers saying, you know, we dominate the world. Britain was in the lead here, but close behind France, um, you know, uh, to some extent, uh, Spain and Portugal continued to have their holdings, although that was contested by the United States pretty early um, in the 19th century. Uh, okay, so the point is that all of this is a fragment of human history. You know, most of human history has been, let's call it now, regional. Um, there have been regional or territorial uh, fragmentation has been the norm in human history. Well, in my opinion... We're returning to that. We're returning to a, not multipolarity, but to regionalism. You know, people are turning into, um, you know, where, where they are rejecting the one global power. You know, what Putin at the Munich Security Conference in 2007 called, we don't want a single master. 
that attitude. You know, the Indians, uh, uh, a government of the right, a government quite close to the United States, also seem to be suggesting we don't want a single power. You know, we want to have our own national interests be on the table. Um, and so we're moving to a to a regional world from a unipolar world. Um, the reason I don't think there's a Thucydides trap, you know, where you go from one global power to another is because the Chinese are not interested. You know, they've said it bluntly. They don't want to take on the mantle of global leadership. They would like to inaugurate a period of genuine multilateralism, use the multilateral institutions. They don't want the, the responsibility, you know, um, and in fact, to be frank, they don't think that any power has the capacity um, to do this job. So we are entering this period of regionalism with a few instances of, let's call them multilateralism or regionalism plus, like BRICS, for instance, or the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. See, in Latin America, you've got the renewal of CELAC, the community of Latin American Caribbean states. Now, the Union of South American countries, UNASOR, both Brazil and Argentina have said, let's revive it. Okay, all of that is happening. The scale in Asia is different. So when you think of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or the RCEP trade agreement, you know, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Agreement, these are enormous scales. So they look like they're global entities. They're not. They're regional. You know, it's just that the scale is much greater. So I believe that gradually, with a great deal of pain, we are moving from a unipolar interregnum, very short interregnum, 1991 to, you know, a few years ago, um, toward a, a situation of regionalism and, and, and multilateralism, but, but not multipolarity. Because multipolarity presages war. You know, that's what happened in World War I. So I don't think people really want multipolarity. Yeah, that, that, that's a nice correction because someone like, uh, Mir Shimmer of, you know, University of Chicago, the, you know, the realist thinker uses this theory of multipolarity to justify it, that it's sort of, uh, an escalated war with China. I mean, he says that the war over Ukraine is a mistake because Russia should be seen as an ally because our big war is with China and the whole justification is based on polarity. He says that we're increasingly moving towards a sort of, he says there are bipoles, like there is a US-Russia access and there is a US-China access and he considered the US-China access to be the main, main sort of trouble. So I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a good point. Um, uh, also in, interesting, you mentioned the, 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 uh, War on drug, the so-called war on drug. And I remember reading your book, Washington Bullets and Evo Morales, uh, forward. And he mentioned, you know, he, he, he's rightly spoke against the war on drug and war on terrorism. So, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to come to, uh, a thesis, uh, the eight contradictions of imperial imperial rule that that you recently published at the Tricontinental, and I, I particularly like to discuss two. Um, why not start with the the first thesis about moribund imperialism, which is the sort of a stagnant uh, capitalist global order led by the U.S. 
as opposed to a Chinese, I mean, you call it Chinese socialism, we can call it by different names, but that's, a, that's an alternative which seems to be much more dynamic, which, which has a very robust welfare state at its core. So talk about that, that to talk about the two alternatives that we have and why this is one of the important contradictions of the imperial uh, order. Well, look, frankly, we're at an interesting period. A major bank in the United States has failed. Now, they keep calling it a regional bank. Uh, it's not a regional bank. They keep calling it a small bank. It's not a small bank. It's the 16th largest bank in the United States. Um, it has a larger, it had at its peak a larger holding than most countries in the world. I'm talking about Silicon Valley Bank. Um, SBB collapses. The United States government goes into a panic. They underwrite all the depositors. Now, who are these depositors? These are quote-unquote innovators, largely. These are not small holders. You know, this is not retail banking. These are people who started, yeah, they started startups, you know, in the anticipation of being bought out by major tech companies. So this is bridge finance till the um, IPO. This is bridge finance till the merger and acquisition. You know, this is not um, some small People getting hit. You know, this is a major bank that played fast and loose uh, with 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 the money and and with the market. You know, because when things start to go bad, they mark to market, and then bang. You know, suddenly your assets are basically worth nothing because well, what's the surety? Ninety percent of your of your holdings are not insured. You know, and the government comes in, bails them out. Interesting that this is a good modular form of understanding U.S. capitalism or Western capitalism. Uh, why is it interesting? Well, look, the United States over the last 40 odd years has had two parallel problems. Um, one problem is basically the tax strike. The elites have gone on strike. They are not paying taxes. You know, they have used their political power and leverage um, to basically refuse to pay a fair share of taxation by any account. Um, taxation uh, uh, harvesting in the U.S. is low. Now, it's higher than in countries like India where, you know, a tax strike has been going on for at least the entirety of the republic. Um, you know, I'm not saying that the United States is in the worst situation. There are many countries, Nigeria, for instance, where the tax harvesting is very poor. But this is nonetheless a problem in the U.S. Secondly, major corporations, but also the rich, um, have basically refused uh, to utilize their holdings, their considerable holdings, trillions of dollars, um, maybe 40 trillion in overseas illicit tax havens, BlackRock Corporation worth something like 10 trillion US dollars. Um, these companies basically are not investing in infrastructure and they are not investing in innovation. They are investing in finance, in real estate, they're investing in overseas, um, you know, building up of sections of the uh, supply chain for certain commodities. BlackRock is a big investor in fossil fuels, weapons, and so on. But they're not investing in infrastructure. They're not investing in innovation. These are risky and also not lucrative investments. You know, building a bridge is not a, is not a lucrative investment. If I had, you know, $20 million, I wouldn't put it into a bridge. I would put it into some sort of, um, you know, even a basic hedge fund and get a good rate of return, you know, much better than a bridge. Bridge, when will a bridge pay? You're going to put toll barriers, that's forever. You know, it's never going to pay for itself. 
Um, so the lack of investment in infrastructure and innovation in the United States has really hurt the country. Um, both the infrastructure has, has been damaged and also innovative breakthroughs not happening. So you get fast and loose banks like Silicon Valley Bank that show up that basically become the bank of innovation. The government isn't financing things like it used to. You know, when, for instance, the military helped develop the Internet, um, government financing has gone down. Um, it has peaked earlier, in fact. <clears throat> so you're relying upon these intermediary banks, innovation banks like SVB. Now, it's interesting. This creates great instability because, um, you know, it's not likely that all the pay, all the, the loans are going to pay off. You know, there's a lot of, um, a risk factor in innovation. You know, innovation has to be allowed to fail. Otherwise, you're not going to succeed. You can't just finance the sure shot. You have to finance failure. Um, and that has to be perhaps socially financed. Uh, because if you start financing failure in the capital markets where the appetite for a high rate of return is there, um, you're going to run into problems. So this is an inevitable bank failure in a sense because you're trying to finance failure, okay, um, with a lot of money. It's not a minimal amounts of money. You're, you're financing the possibility or financing risk at very high levels. It's much more risky to finance innovation than to finance, say, a country that's struggling uh, where, you know, the price of money is high. So the price of money is not high for many of these loans given to startup companies and therefore they, they borrowed a lot. You know, they borrowed to pay their, 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 their payroll, you know, just to pay their employees, to pay their rent, to pay, you know, for the air conditioning in Silicon Valley and so on. They were borrowing for everything. You know, uh, it was, they used Silicon Valley Bank like a credit card. It's a good model of what has happened to U.S. capitalism. Okay. Or in broad sense, Western capitalism, because it's no longer clear as the Europeans used to say after the financial crisis, that there's a Anglo-Saxon capitalism and then there's a prudent Germanic capitalism. I don't see it at all. It's just not there. Meanwhile, in a country like China, which is a socially managed economy. Now, again, you, you, you hesitated with the word socialism. Well, you know, people have different definitions of what socialism is. It's certainly a socially managed economy. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, the state plays a big role in the, in the system and the state happens to finance a lot of innovation. Now, the United States has used the fact of Chinese state financing of innovation uh, as a, a, a ideological weapon to say there's something suspicious about this. The state is involved, there's surveillance, this, that. Well, for God's sake, the bulk of U.S. innovation was financed by the state. You know, why are you cavilling when the Chinese are financing innovation, which they are? Um, and so there... What you've seen in the last decade or so is as a consequence of the large surpluses in China built up because China has been able to utilize the human capital that it developed after the Chinese revolution of 49. Um, they've built up these large surpluses. They've built up the capacity, um, scientific and technical capacity and so on. And so the Chinese are financing innovation as a, as a state venture. Um, there's a lot of state money that goes into innovation. That's, I think, not a controversial issue. They're doing that. Um, and also they're financing infrastructure. The two areas where there's weakness in the United States, infrastructure and innovation financing, is actually happening in China. And I think that sets up a major conflict between these two countries. Why? 
in any normal Adam Smithian kind of world, this would be treated as something perfectly reasonable. Um, one country was a leading commercial power, and then it basically hollowed itself out, and another country emerged as a leading commercial power. Well, well done, China. You know, you, you've emerged as a leading commercial power. But, and I want to say something that might, you know, hurt the ears of some people. But there's a racist component to this. There's a colonial component to this. Um, the component is this. How dare these countries? These countries, they, their role in the world is to be the coolies. They should provide the basic labor um, for capital that, um, you know, is accumulated in the West. But how dare they um, start producing innovation? And how dare they go ahead of, of the West? You know, if they are producing innovation, it's either by theft. Remember that whole discourse that the Chinese stole the technology? And secondly, if it's not by theft, then it's the yellow peril dictatorship. They're going to listen in on your phone. Now, what's interesting is Edward Snowden already established that U.S. tech companies have a pipeline to the National Security Agency. That was Snowden's revelation. That was the main revelation from Snowden. So now the U.S. government is saying, be careful of Huawei. Why? Not because there's evidence of snooping, but they may snoop on you. But you're already snooping. And not only that, but the U.S. government was snooping on Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany's phone, you know. Um, but yet the yellow peril comes in and there's fear of the Chinese and so on. Link that. And here's the last point uh, to return to that colonialism thing. Link that to this idea that they don't deserve. What is the, you know, you know, do, how did they get the 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 you know what right do they have to put their head above the turret um you know this is a way in which uh hierarchies um are disturbed deeply disturbed by the emergence of people saying hey listen i can make a phone if not as well as you if not better than you certainly almost as well as you and cheaper and therefore i'm going to outmarket you hey guys on the in commercial terms there's not illegal to do that just in case people at Harvard Business School have forgotten that this is not commercially um, illegal. This is called trade, you know, and commerce. Um, and it's not called capitalism, by the way. Just because people trade with each other isn't capitalism. Uh, that, I think, is one of the misunderstandings. People say, oh, the Chinese are selling a lot of stuff overseas. That's not socialism. That's capitalism. Are you insane? Even in a socialist world, we'll be trading with each other. There'll be commerce. Capitalism isn't about trade. Uh, that's that's ridiculous. There was a big debate in the 60s, 70s about what capitalism was. Uh, section went with the mode of production uh, sort of line of argument. Uh, you know, Hamza V, uh, Sapat Nayak in India, Brenner um, in, in, the, in the North Atlantic world, and Paul Sweezy and others who emphasized on trade, but not trade, uh, which was devoid of changes within the means of production. Um, uh, on the theft, I mean, it, as you spoke, it reminds me of Sven Becker's Empire of Cotton and how uh, technology was basically stolen during the sort of first industrial revolution in cotton textile from Asia, sort of China and India leading 
um, handloom and craft-based artisanal textile production. So, you know, uh, that's uh, that's not new. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned the Silicon Valley Bank and the crisis of U.S. capitalism, because one of the things that Paul Krugman wrote in the New York Times following that, where he said that there is nothing to worry, this is sort of a small bank, as you mentioned, and it's a unique thing because it is mainly tech businesses, deposits coming in, and these deposits are funded in very low-risk, long-term securities. Now, of course, bank regulations were torn off in 2018 following Trump, and that led to sort of lack of hedging. But what he doesn't mention is that this millions and billions of dollars coming in to be locked in low interest rate security itself mentions, itself reflects the crisis of capital in the West where trillions of dollars actually have nowhere to go but to be locked in this sort of sterile, uh, you know, treasury, treasury bills or, or government securities. Um, but anyway, um, I, I just wanted to come to the the second sort of, uh, or, or the, the, the one of the points of the thesis, the eight point thesis that, that you guys, um, came out with, which is the sort of what we are seeing in Latin America. You mentioned more exclusively the case of Colombia and Gustavo Petro's coming to power, you know, marking a, 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 a historic moment rejecting a sort of vessel status for Colombia, but also, let's say, in Chile, um, Boric's coming there reflects a long-drawn struggle against neoliberalism in the region or Morales Party being re-elected in 2020 after all that drama that we saw or more recently Lula. Tell us a little bit about the pink tide in Latin America and how that represents a more sort of hopeful alternative and challenges to the sort of unipolar imperialist world order. Well, I don't know about more hopeful because it's got its own stresses and strains and and its own problems and internal weaknesses. Um, So in my opinion, this is the fourth wave. Uh, after the Cuban Revolution. You know, the first wave was occasioned by the Cuban Revolution in 1959. A series of, of left-wing eruptions took place where people went into the forest and attempted to replicate the Cuban Revolution in their countries. You know, it, it, it really was quite continental in scale. Um, you saw the Tupamaros in, in Uruguay and in, in parts of Argentina. You saw, you know, my friend Hector Behar, for instance, moves to the guerrilla struggle in Peru um, and so on and so forth, including the FARC in Colombia, which sets it goes into a, a, a conscious arms struggle in 1964 after the Cuban Revolution. Um, that was the first wave. It was really destroyed by the military dictatorships that took place. Um, you know, a string of, of, of dictatorships um, that took place beginning in 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 Brazil in 1964 uh, which then created project condor operation condor which led to all the coups across the continent including chile 73 50 years ago uh, uh, sorry you yeah. start your washington bullets with the case of guatemala which i mean i just wanted to plug in 
Yeah, although that comes before the Cuban Revolution, and that's a slightly different Four. story. Okay, yeah. Right. yeah. It's yeah. a slightly different story. So the second wave after the Cuban Revolution takes place 20 years later. And that's actually in the Caribbean. You see the Nicaraguan Revolution of 79. You see the Grenadan Revolution uh, coming shortly thereafter, just a few months later, and so on. Uh, you see the Sandinistas in El Salvador. Um, you got uh, really quite fierce fighting in Guatemala. And that's the second wave in Central America and the Caribbean. Um, these are crushed by direct U.S. intervention uh, or semi-direct, you know, as in the case of the Contras and so on. Um, so that was the second wave after the Cuban Revolution. The third wave comes after the fall of the Soviet Union, and that's led to a great extent by the Venezuelan people, um, the uh, election of Chavez in 98, um, his ascendancy to the presidency in 99 is the opening up of this phase that's followed by a series of, of victories of the left on the continent. And they come on the back of a, a long decade of neoliberal policy that has impoverished the continent. So that's the third wave after the Cuban revolution. That wave is destroyed by two processes. One, it's destroyed by the collapse of commodity prices. That's a more objective, um, you know, hit that these processes take. And secondly, it's destroyed by what we call hybrid war techniques that the U.S. employs in South America and Central America, where there's an information war, there's an attempt to destabilize countries, there's the push to, for instance, diplomatic isolation, sanctions, and so on. And this had a really tough effect on Venezuela in particular, um, you know, really difficult effect on Venezuela. Um, Nicolas Maduro, the president, was able to withstand the pressure and come out alive, come out with the Bolivarian process intact, but, but they were really hard by the hybrid war. Well, we are now in the fourth wave. Uh, it's not the same as the third wave. We are in a fourth wave. What is the character of the fourth wave? Um, in, in a sense, the fourth wave appears at a time of world history where other parts of the world are also moving in a direction away from U.S. imperialism. Um, so this fourth wave is actually in harmony with developments happening elsewhere. Um, it's not something particular to Latin America any longer. Um, this is a harmonic wave because it's happening uh, alongside the other regional processes. As I said, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization renewed attempts on the African con continent to talk about Pan-Africanism and so on. So that's part of this wave. It's an incoherent wave, and that's important to say. It's a social democratic wave. It's not a left wave. Uh, it's social democratic in the sense that very few of these, um, you know, uh, these these governments, with one or two exceptions I'll mention in a minute, very few of these governments have actually have an agenda that's beyond um, the constitutional requirements of the country. So that even in Chile, the attempt to draft a new constitution, which collapsed, then renewed um, into an elitist approach where you, instead of having a constituent assembly, you basically nominate experts to write a new constitution. Um, so they, they were not able to break through out of the current conjuncture. And in that sense, because they couldn't break out of the current conjuncture, you call them a social democratic um, form of politics. You know, a left politics has to try to change the conjuncture, not remain within its its bounds. Even Lula is going to have to operate in the conjuncture. 
because he is hemmed in by a, a Senate and a Chamber of Deputies that's essentially Bolsonarista. Um, now, the exception, there are one or two exceptions. Of course, Cuba, Venezuela continue to be outside the bounds of this. But the real exception is Mexico, where Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has moved an agenda of energy sovereignty, pushing really hard to nationalize um, all the energy um, you know, production in Mexico, not just oil, but also lithium. Now, this is interesting. Uh, what Andres Manuel is doing in Mexico and giving leadership on the con- at a continental level, uh, this comes from a country that has very close ties with the United States. You know, um, he doesn't want to su- rupture ties with the U.S. at all. He's very clear about that. His principal, uh, you know, uh, trading partner is the United States. But nonetheless, Andres Manuel is changing some of the con- features of the conjuncture. But by and large, I would say this wave is harmonic with developments around the world. In other words, the regionalism piece, but also it's it's deeply social democratic. And that's one of the reasons why it frustrates me when people on the left are disappointed with this or that action. Um, that's an idealistic disappointment. You know, uh, people on the left, Marxists, must seek the actual movement of history and not have an idealistic approach to the world. Uh, you've got to have a, a, a sense of the actual movement. Um, which is why it also desperately frustrates me to see people, um, you know, have a kind of casual attitude to China or a casual attitude to Vietnam and things like that. You know, um, they don't have a sense of what are, what is the conjuncture, what are the possibilities, um, what is the dynamic, is this process trying to shift the terms of the conjuncture or is it comfortable within it? I mean, these are the kind of methodologies of assessing um, you know, a process in the world today. And I feel like this kind of conjunctural analysis um, has disappeared from many people and the kind of Twitter attitude takes place. You know, you dismiss something saying, oh, now they are no longer there. So there's a kind of papal excommunication of Twitter that operates rather than a sober assessment of the actual movement of history, which we're all collectively trying to understand. One of the things that uh, that is said on hindsight, uh, particularly on the third wave that rode on the sort of commodity prices, which, uh, you know, export exports the primary products to China, for instance, one of the criticisms or one of the things suggested on hindsight was the lack of push towards industrial development in Latin America. I'm having particularly Brazil in mind. And the other, of course, other aspect was corruption. And corruption is a sort of, you know, difficult, complicated thing. Uh, we have seen that in India, with the India against corruption. And we are, we, we've seen that in Latin America time again. Uh, so um, can you tell us a little bit on that, uh, whether there has been any attempts at industrial development um, and if you can address the concerns of the Workers' Party in Brazil in particular and its perception of corruption that's still there. Right. So let's take them sequentially. They're not exactly related, but they are interesting to look at together. But sequentially, first, industrialization or diversification, because these are not exactly the same thing. Let's take Venezuela. Um, the country discovered oil over a hun- just about a hundred years ago and became entirely reliant upon oil. I mean, over 90% of 
external revenues came from the oil sector. That, that's extraordinary, you know, and the country imported everything. The curse of, of something like oil is it actually deindustrializes a country because there's no incentive. You know, you've got all this revenue flowing in. There's no incentive um, to invest in, in diversification, in industrialization and so on. Um, there was none, you know, and I'm not talking about Chavez. I'm talking about before 98, um, the bourgeois governments, you know, 40 years of Action Democratica and COPE, the two bourgeois parties which went back and forth, 40 years of Action Democratica and COPE, they didn't diversify the economy. They didn't industrialize the country. You know, it was basically a consumption society resting on export of oil. Um, just like most colonial countries, you know, that exported one crop, you know, bauxite or sugarcane or whatever. Um, you know, not a country like India because it's so large, but many of the colonial economies were one uh, export economies and Venezuela no different. Okay. When Chavez comes in in 1999, he's acutely aware of this problem. You know, um, you know, by his side are veterans of the of the fight over a period of 25 years of trying to you know fight against what they call the devil's excrement, uh, which is what they call oil. You know, um, uh, Carlos Mendoza Portelli, for instance, at the central bank uh, was a Marxist-Leninist. He was the assistant of the great minister of hydrocarbons, you know, uh, Alfonso Lopez, I mean, the man of the of the center. Um, he was one of the founders of OPEC. Uh, Carlos Mendoza, Portoli, people like that, they put things on the table. We need to diversify our country. They had all kinds of projects. Um, but it's not easy to pivot. Um, you see, why is it not easy? How did China, how was China able to industrialize in the 1950s? The first wave of Chinese industrialization was basically the export of Soviet uh, ingenuity, their technology, uh, Soviet specialists, and in some cases, wholesale Soviet factories. So if you go to the northern region of Changchung, you know, in Harbin, near the, the, the section near the old Soviet Union, th there are entire Soviet factories. You know, I, I ask, you know, given your own interests, it would be worthwhile to go up to northeastern China. You'll see whole factories that were basically turnkey projects from the USSR. Um, that's what actually enabled China's industrialization in the 50s. The first wave of industrialization was basically turnkey projects from the USSR. Um, you then can go back and say, how did the USSR do it? With a lot of strain and stress, a lot of difficulty. I mean, the 1930s in the USSR was a tough period. And they built industry from scratch, um, you know, and then rebuilt it after the war, etc. Um, but in Venezuela, in the 19, uh, in the 2000s, first decade of the 2000s, who's going to come and help you build factories? You know, not the United States. Soviet Russia, Soviet Union had collapsed. Russia not capable. At the time, China was deeply insular in its foreign policy, in its outlook toward the world. China itself had just opened Shenzhen, you know, just about a decade before, was trying to develop its own understanding of how to make it past the technology gap. You know, one of the assessments in China for the fall of the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union was not able to bridge the technology gap. Now, whether that's an accurate assessment or why the Soviet Union collapsed is a separate issue, but it's an accurate understanding of what the Chinese felt in the 1990s. This is a big issue for China. We've got to bridge the technology gap. They were not going to have 
turnkey projects uh, sent to Venezuela. So there's a lot of complexity in diversification and particularly industrialization. You see, you can diversify. You can use your oil rent money that you're getting. You can start growing agriculture, which is what they did for the first time. Venezuela now is relatively food sufficient after years of making all kinds of attempts of reviving agriculture. But it's it's different from, you know, putting in investment to do agriculture or, or, or building up your commercial sector, you know, diversifying your commercial sector or small industry. Different from all that to suddenly say, look, we're going to start making cell phones. Look at Bolivia. Bolivia took the lithium with Chinese, um, again, Chinese playing the role of the Soviets. Chinese coming in, helping the Bolivians with technology. Um, and now Bolivia makes its own um, lithium batteries. They, they, it's an indigenously made lithium battery. In fact, they made a small electric car. Um, but that was with the with the technological inputs of the Chinese. So I just want to say that, you know, it's easy on paper to say diversify or industrialize, but they're actually practical issues, not just issues of, of, of finance, of technology, of, you know, having the carrying capacity of, you know, engineers, for instance, do you have sufficient engineers in your country? Okay. You know, I mean, if you look at the numbers of engineers um, in, a, in a country, you'll begin to understand whether it is capable of industrialization at that moment. You know, India is another test case um, to look at. After independence, you know, India had a literacy rate of 13% when the British were ejected. Um, what did the government do? Precious, precious human resources were used to build the capacity of, of an Indian technical uh, cadre. You know, they built the Indian Institutes of Technology. Um, they put a lot of emphasis on science education and so on. And you built this cadre of engineers. Now, it happened that a bunch of them then leave the country and go work elsewhere. That's a separate issue. Um, but, you know, actually Nehru and company understood that, that you can't industrialize um, by just asking ex-British, I mean, British engineers to come and work for you. You've got to train your own people. And all of that is is much harder much, much harder. And there's a lot to learn, actually, from the Chinese experience. There's a lot to learn, a lot to be gained from. Unfortunately, because of this antipathy to China, people are not willing to take the time to look carefully at, at what exactly, um, you know, how they were able to do it. It's well worth looking at. And by the way, I know you're looking at it. So well done, you. Elon Musk doesn't like the Chinese in Bolivia and over lithium. But I mean, on a, on a more serious note, uh, we had uh, Professor Prabhat Patnayak and we had a small discussion on the Soviet Union. And he particularly said three things um, about the Soviet Union's contribution. One was the constitution of the massive welfare state, uh, the defeat of fascism, and the decolonization movement. But he also added that uh, the very important element about how the Soviet Union aided developing countries through technology export and uh, also supporting the trade union movement, both of whom which have sort of vanished with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And just to add with, on the difficulties, I think 
the, the, the period between, or, or let's say after the Second World War was a period globally of command economies. So, the, I mean, you mentioned the case of India, China. Um, now it has become increasingly more difficult because capital has become much more mobile and Latin America doesn't have the advantage of cheap labor, which let's say China had at one point in time or other parts of, of, of Asia had. So that's, I guess, is another problem to keep control on capital, which should constantly move to lower cost of production. Um, I wanted to quickly come to uh, East Asia because that's related to what's going on in Ukraine and that's the sort of other excess and come. it's it's the more sort of, um, it's something for the future. A tremendous amount of destabilization is going on. Japan has been, has been persuaded to turn um, down its specific constitution. Something is fired every other day in the Korean Peninsula. A lot is going on in Taiwan and the Straits. And recently there were new bases acquired in Philippines by the U.S. So tell us a little bit about this conflict, the, the tremendous destabilization of East Asia that we are seeing. Well, you know, it goes back actually now some decades Um you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States withdrew from its bases in the Philippines. It looked like there was going to be perhaps even a drawdown uh, in Japan, massive U.S. military footprint in Okinawa Island and so on. That's It looked like it was going in that direction. United States and China were cooperating pretty well, you know, and so on. After the world financial crisis, I think, um, it became clear to people in the United States that China had developed, you know, in at, way, at a pace that they were not uh, monitoring effectively enough. That the rate of of um, of China China's development was was rapid. Not just the rate of growth, uh, but the rate of development. In other words, rate of growth is one thing. You know, you can have a high growth rate uh, by selling lots of commodities. But China had actually developed its technological and scientific. Um, establishment, it had built up private and public and para-public companies um, that were creating technologies of the next millennium, you know, robotics, um, artificial intelligence, um, 5G and so on, inclusive of green technology, where China became one of the the leaders of the production of green technology. Um, And then suddenly you see in the Obama administration um, a an anxiety about the rise of China. This is very recent in a way, this anxiety. Um, the United States does not prevent, it does not allow the Hatoyama government in Japan uh, to start, um, you know, moving the U.S. bases off island, particularly in Okinawa. The Hatoyama government is overthrown in 2009. Very mysterious circumstances. You know, I've written a lot about this. It's a largely ignored, quote-unquote, coup d'etat, against the liberal government, which had been elected on a mandate of negotiating with the U.S. to um, to start, you know, rolling back on the bases. And then comes the Indo-Pacific strategy. Then comes this thing called the Quad with India, um, Australia, Japan, and the United States. Then comes uh, the re-establishment uh, of bases in Guam, you know, the improvements to the bases, the, the 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 vast amount of money spent in Australia to redo U.S. Australian bases, and then AUKUS and and so on and so forth. The militarization 
of the quote unquote Indo Pacific or the or the South China Sea region um, and the the Sea of Japan is actually quite stunning uh, in the short period in which they militarized the area. Now, why have they done this? You know, what's the threat? Okay, what's the threat? Is the threat really one or two island chains? Um, in the South China Sea that are contested between Vietnam and, and China or between the Philippines and China? Is it really about Hong Kong and Taiwan? I mean, are these the real issues? I don't think so. And here's why I don't think so. Um, RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic uh, Pact that was signed between, it's the largest treat, you know, economic treaty in the world, um, was signed in Hanoi. Um, the Vietnamese are a major party to this. Vietnam and China have improved relations beyond our imagination, you know, uh, since the war of 1978. You know, they've really improved their relations. I don't think Vietnam wants to start a hot conflict over a couple of islands off the coast of Vietnam that it has contested with China. I very much doubt that they are, you know, in support of starting a major international war around these islands, which are many of them uninhabited. Similarly, in, in Philippines, um, you know, young Marcos is, is in the saddle, the Marcos family back in power. Um, Marcos has actually not got an entirely hostile relationship with China, but that's a separate issue. I don't think even the elites in the Philippines are willing to have a hot war and themselves be essentially the Ukraine of East Asia. Yeah. Because of some island chains and, and also some idea about where Chinese territorial waters ends and begins. I really don't think they want to go to that level. Uh, and certainly South Korea, the appetite in the country, despite a Trump-like president now, hmm. the appetite in the country is generally pretty pacifist. You know, people don't want a, a war either with the DPRK or with the Chinese or whatever it is. So there's no appetite for war in that region. You know, even in Taiwan, it's a mixed bag in the country. So the U.S. is imposing a conflict. Why? Why is the U.S. imposing a conflict? It's my view that the United States has come to a pretty rational understanding that its corporations cannot compete commercially against the Chinese. I think they've come to that understanding. You can do the CHIPS Act. You can put money into building semiconductor plants in Arizona, whatever it is. Those are not going to germinate for a decade. You know, you're still going to rely on the supply chain to get you chips from Taiwan and so on. Um, China is basically reincorporating, um, you know, the earlier um, territories that had been very close uh, to Beijing, you know, Taiwan, Southeast Asia and so on. That's what they consider in their internal geography as the first ring. You know, uh, countries that are in that first ring are being reincorporated economically and also politically. You know, they have a political fealty to China because of the massive investments coming from China, which the United States cannot um, substitute. You know, they can't, they can't tell, you know, a country like say, um, you know, Thailand, stop taking, stop getting involved in the BRI. We'll substitute the investment. They don't have the investment to substitute, you know, and private sector money through things like the Millennium Challenge Corporation are minimal. You know, there are minimal grants that are coming in right now in Niger. They've promised, um, you know, $150 million um, for, uh, you know, Niger's uh, humanitarian problems and the UN is saying, no, it's 400 million is the gap funding shortfall. 100 million is nothing, you know. Um, so I feel like this 
over exaggerated militarization of the uh, rim is taking place not for uh, security reasons because in fact china is not really threatening to invade anybody uh, but it's happening because the us is using military diplomatic force to try to get china to buckle in other words to try to get china to say um, you know dismantle its tech sector it's not going to happen it's just not going to happen and the chinese are not being provoked that's what i find very interesting you know the, with the visit of two congressional delegations to taiwan the chinese were not provoked they waited for nancy pelosi to leave taiwanese airspace and then they shut down taiwanese airspace they didn't contest her plane in flight um you know which they could have done they could have said look you recognize taiwan that is washington recognizes taiwan as part of china that is actually something that washington has done in 1978 you recognize Ch- taiwan as part of china therefore china has the right to shut down the airspace in taiwan as nancy pelosi's plane is approaching they didn't do that because that would have set off a confrontation they let her leave and then they as an act of uh, establishing their their pol- political position they shut down taiwanese airspace so they are not being provoked you know it's very interesting i i think that's what xi jinping's visit to vladimir putin is to some extent about um, xi jinping has been making the point that china is 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 a force for peace in the world is not interested in conflict um the chinese at all levels of government have been saying that i find that interesting um uh, this would have been a perfect opportunity uh, if china had a different kind of understanding of the world for china to say we stand with russia down with the west they're not saying that they are in fact saying we want to enlarge the zone of peace very interesting it's the west that's talking war and it's china that's talking peace that's interesting now i know there are lots of western leftists and others who say the chinese are lying um i don't know why they would uh, believe that the chinese are lying there is very little evidence to suggest that china is seeking a confrontation military confrontation with the west um now again there's some islands in the south china sea come, come on guys there are massive military bases of the united states within spitting distance of china you spend so much time talking about those small island chains you don't say one word about the massive military bases including nuclear forces in australia uh, in darwin you know there's a massive new expansion of the of the of the air base there so that the us can can house um, b2 and b52 bombers which have nuclear capacity um, you know not one word about that but you're worried about the small island chains most of them uninhabited and many of them by the way are also artificial islands that the chinese have have you know built for whatever reason to extend their um, their their territorial waters and so things that all countries do by the way just just to put that there india does this as well it is important to note that the chinese development story has come without colonies and you know military invasions and without dismantling of the welfare state i think that's a sort of very very important note that people uh, often miss and talking about the pacifist uh, policies i recently read a report on taiwanese fishermen's association taking a delegation to china to sort of this is post nancy pelosi's visit and the sort of 
somewhat, you know, um, tension building uh, within the government. Um, so they were basically trying to negotiate because their business was related to, you know, a lot of uh, buying contracts placed by China and they were successful um, to a large extent. I wanted to quickly wrap this up by asking you a very general question about uh, the left um, in general, because if you look at the U.S. left, for instance, which is sort of which is most uh, conspicuous in the sort of uh, decimation of the Bernie Sanders movement. That's like very, very conspicuous in the media, how they are behaving. The main issues of the U.S. left media that came out of, I'm not talking about the MSNBCs or even the Washington Post. I'm talking about those sort of um, media that came out of the Sanders movement, their main issues are vax, anti-vax, oak, anti-oak, or, you know, in one case, it's important war, anti-war, but I mean, not, not taking it very seriously, but the work you do, Tricontinental, I follow it and everyone should follow it. And there are a whole range of uh, uh, media across the world. Tell us a little bit about uh, the the left, because apart from Latin America, it has been weakened significantly in many parts, Europe, US, India, and so on. On the other hand, the working class um, is very militant. As we are talking, we are seeing these enormous mobilizations in France, uh, probably million um, working class people to save the pension scheme. Recently, we saw something like that in Britain. We are, that's going on in the U.S. and so on. So tell us about the strategy of the global left uh, at the face of tremendous precarity uh, imposed by neoliberal capitalism, but also when the working class is rising up in some ways. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Firstly, I, I'd say that the left is weak everywhere, even in Latin America. It's not strong. Um, it's weakened for various reasons. Um, I think the enormous contradictions of our moment have produced um, a situation where the, the left has to become more robust, you know, has to be out there championing um, the cost of living problems, the survival problems of people, the question of the climate um, you know, the, the, uh, IPCC released another report depressing, you know, things are in a bad situation. Um, the left needs to lead on things like war and so on. But there is a incoherence that's set in the middle of, uh, much of the global left. And a lot of this has to do with that contradiction number one that you talked about from our eight contradictions text, which is to say, what is the situation with China? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even in a place like India, there are sections of the left that tear each other apart on this issue. Um, there's a kind of juvenile uh, debate that takes place. That's not a factual debate. You know, uh, it's a debate that absorbs, um, you know, the information war coming out of, of the West and, and, and allows that information war to set the terms for the debate. You know, in other words, authoritarianism or, or what's happening in Xinjiang and so on. Um, that becomes the, the, the terms of the debate rather than, you know, the things we've been talking about, which I think are much more important and sober to talk about. Like, for instance, what is the project for poor countries today? You know, is there a possibility of utilizing whatever resources one has 
to leverage that to um, you know improve to build a, a robust welfare state uh, to build us a welfare state am i strong on uh, on a kind of complicated industrialized economy you know yeah, where is the technological capacity going to come from where will the investment come from how do we use the belt and road initiative mm-hmm. possibilities um you know with a national project and so on that should be where the left is having a debate you know we should set the terms of our own debate uh, and not about you know uh, some information war type of stuff that's there now look there may be whatever problems in xinjiang i, I don't know exactly what's going on i've never been there but i've read a lot about what's happening there and i don't feel that it it raises to the standard of like some you know where you can forget everything else and that becomes the focus of your discussion okay it's a, it's a little bit like um how the you remember the the genocide in darfur um, took over our thinking for a long period of time you know what was happening in darfur as mahmud mamdani established in a very good book uh, about darfur was that the sahel uh, was was being eaten up or rather the the plains area in in sudan was being eaten up by the desert there's been an increasing desiccation of 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 the darfur region water was in contest and so on and there were great fights between different people about shrinking resources let's look at the facts of what's happening let's try to understand what what is actually going on there uh, rather than you know throw the label of genocide and then you know beat each other up on this in in darfur as mamdani showed uh, the debate was a way to say that arabs aka muslims were against black africans aka christians so you know it was heavily pushed by um, you know by the israeli government for instance as a way again to increase islamophobia that's what the darfur conflict enabled now it's not that there wasn't a terrible thing happening in darfur but the terrible thing that was happening in darfur was not identical to you know how it was being portrayed um and so similar every once in a while the left is punctuated with these debates which are imposed on us by somebody else you know what is your position on darfur how come you don't have a position on on this or that look frankly i have written against um the the two wars in chechnya uh, one led by president yeltsin the second led by president putin at that time forces in in the west were all in favor of those wars saying these are part of the war on terror you know we stood against them you know i, I don't have some uh, you know i don't carry some big bucket for mr putin personally but i want to understand historically what is going on in ukraine i want to have a balanced attitude you don't have to have a litmus test you know do you condemn do you condemn do you condemn uh, the left doesn't approach the world uh, you know by having our debates imposed having imposed on us and so i think the left is really in a tough position now because that first contradiction let's say how to understand china um it bedevils the left you know people uh, they have all kinds of understandings and attitudes about china without knowing anything about china <coughs> just to say you know without knowing anything about china um in the 1960s there was a problem because a group of writers totally exaggerated the cultural revolution calling it a great positive thing and so on on the one side there is with very little understanding total jubilation about what's happening in a place on the other side without any understanding total condemnation 
Look, a place like China doesn't doesn't want your hundred percent support or your hundred percent condemnation. It's our role as people of the left to understand the movement of history, to see what kind of things are happening, what are some of the problems, what are some of the failures, what are some of the things that you know uh, require um, a, a deeper assessment and so on. I mean, are you going to say because of what one right-wing guy has written in a report in Washington, D.C., that we just say all of the 1.5 billion Chinese people are going to be called genocidal and the entire Chinese experiment with socialism is to be thrown in the trash heap. Really? Not me. I'm much more interested in a sober understanding of the world. And I would encourage people of the left to have a sober sense of the world, not to have a kind of exaggerated understanding one way or the other, you know, 100% support, 100% condemnation. It's a completely irrational view of the world. Absolutely. Um, I think this this is uh, where we would like to end.